Hey everybody, we ready to start? Yes? Yes. If you didn't get this uh, bread pudding dessert, I highly recommend it. It's so good. I took like four home last time. <laughs> yeah. This is my weekly grocery shopping. You'd be amazed how much you can stretch this out to lower rice in it. Got like five five days worth of food. So we're picking back up Leviticus chapter 23, closing in on the end of the book. We've been this section that we're in through chapter 24 is about in general uh, sacred things. So we've moved from uh, the the requirements of God's people and the priesthood last week or yeah last week. So now we're in. The focus is on moving from like the sacred things of the tabernacle to the sacred times that the tabernacle will be commemorated. And these sacred times are Israel's holidays, Israel's high holidays or their feasts. There are a couple of lists. These are found just if you want to know more. It's not like there's one section that has all about the holidays. This is one of the sections but then Exodus 23 has some stuff, Numbers 25 or 28 and 29, and then Deuteronomy 16. So the holidays are repeated throughout, and each section that deals with them deals with them from a different angle or, or focuses in on a different holiday. But the things to remember when we're reading through chapter 23, this is kind of Israel's calendar for the year. Their calendar was based on a lunar calendar. Ours is based on the solar calendar. So one year equals one trip around the sun. Israel's calendar was based on a lunar calendar. So a new moon was a new month. Because of that, the months don't line up with solar calendar months because they're a little bit shorter, like 350-something days instead of 365. So every societies that were on a lunar calendar would have to add in months, kind of like we do with a leap year. You know, every four years we add a day. And that keeps the calendar in sync because a year isn't really 365 days. It's like 365 point something days. So they would do that with the lunar calendar. Every, every X number of years, they would add another month, 13th month, that would kind of reset and set things right. So when we're looking at biblical holidays and dates and times, that's where some of the confusion comes from. That's why it's, it's hard to nail down a specific day for some of these festivals. Or some of the events and, and so you'll hear people kind of teaching some different things because we don't have their calendar we don't live by a lunar calendar we live by a solar calendar <clears throat> so that explains some of the differences the other big difference with israel's calendar was it was based on dividing the year in basically in half so you had the first half of the year and you had the second half of the year and it was all based around the harvests Israel was an agrarian society. They were going to be entering into the promised land. They were going to move from being a herding society, a wandering nomad, um, herdsman. They were going to move into Canaan. They were going to receive the land, and therefore they would become a settled society. So just the giving of these holidays is a promise by God of something that they had never experienced before. That's something we don't remember a lot. We kind of forget that. 
when Israel's moving into the land, they're embarking on an entirely new phase of existence. They were, they were shepherds. They were herdsmen. They're going to be inheriting. They're going to be taking over the land that God has driven the Canaanites out of. This is all in theory at this point. They're going to be taking over that land and they're going to be receiving of the produce and the fields and the harvests and all of that of that land. So God's giving them a way to start over their calendar, how they're going to celebrate it, that both looks forward to their time in the land, cultivating the land and working it, but also looks backwards to their time being wandering shepherds. So both of those are going to come together in these holidays. And the, the chapter is broken up into, there's basically three holidays, three festivals at the beginning of the year, what we would call spring, and three in the fall. And that's how Israel's calendar worked. They were just kind of two chunks of three. We, we really have maybe one major holiday season in, in our culture. We have the stretch from Thanksgiving to New Year's. That's kind of our, for most Americans, that's our holidays. Uh, Easter, for Christians, it's a big deal, obviously. But for the society we live in, Easter's not a real big deal. I mean, you don't, you know, whole culture, our whole economy is based around holiday shopping. The holidays, Thanksgiving is huge, multi-billion dollar industry. Christmas, multi-billion dollar industry. Um, and even New Year's celebration, all the stuff that goes into that. So those are kind of our main holidays. They're clustered at the end of the year. And then we have some stuff like, you know, St. Patrick's Day, Easter, that kind of stuff. We don't really get big into it. Um, but that's when like Easter, Passover, that kind of stuff happens for some people. So we live in a secular culture that doesn't have these emphasis. But for Israel, they were going to be God's people and they were going to keep God's calendar. And it was going to be for them. All of these holidays commemorated things about this covenant relationship that we've been exploring. And the very first one that it starts with is actually every week. There is one holiday that they celebrated every week, and that's the Sabbath. So chapter 23, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed feasts, the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies, as holy gatherings. You translate that. Verse 3, There are six days when you may work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of rest, a day of sacred assembly. You're not to do any work wherever you live. It's a Sabbath to Yahweh. So the first holiday, it's already been mentioned. It's already been mentioned. It's the only one that's in the Ten Commandments. And it's the only of the Ten Commandments. It's the only one that's rooted in creation. This is why there's a, there's a lot of dispute among Christians about what we do with the Sabbath. What should Christians do with the Sabbath? You know, some people say, well, it's an Old Testament thing, so we don't have to keep it anymore. But the Sabbath goes back before the giving of the law at Sinai. It's rooted in creation itself. Um, others say that it's just the observance. The way that uh, God commanded Israel to observe the Sabbath is doesn't have to be the way that all of God's people observe the Sabbath. You can observe it differently. And there's, because the, the commands for observing it and the regulations and all of that came later. But the concept of Sabbath, again, is rooted in the rhythms of creation itself. And there's all kinds of, um, a whole body of theology about Sabbath keeping. And there's some denominations that are super strict about it. You know, Seventh-day Adventists basically will tell you everything short of you're going to hell. 
if you don't keep the Sabbath as it was given in the Old Testament, which means Saturday, not Sunday. Make a big deal about it. But in the New Testament, Paul kind of seems to say, look, some people consider every day holy, some people consider one day holy. Each person needs to be have it in their own mind which it is. And so there's some leeway in the New Testament on how the Sabbath is observed. But there's never really a question of whether the Sabbath is observed. The concept of six days of work and at least one day of rest goes all the way through Scripture. And so that's a challenge for us in our society is reclaiming the core of what Sabbath was meant to evoke or meant to symbolize for God's people because we're busy. We're a busy society. You know, Sabbath is everything's still open. We don't shut down on Sundays like some cultures or some communities in America used to do. Um, and so there's a lot of questions about it. By the way, Sunday was never Sabbath. Just clear that up. Sunday was never, ever the Sabbath day, ever in the Bible, ever. I'm, I'm emphasizing that because there's a lot of folk theology built up around that. But Sunday is the Lord's day. Sunday is the day after the Sabbath. So early Christians, who most were Jews, would celebrate Sabbath. That's why they couldn't, they had to bury Jesus really quickly because Sabbath was approaching. And then he rose. And all Sunday was considered the first day of the week. So early, early Christians, if they were Jewish, they'd celebrate Sabbath and then get up early on the first day of the week. And before they went to work, they would gather together. They would do a, a love feast or communion meal or whatever. They would sing some hymns. They would celebrate uh, the risen Lord. And then they would go about their day and their week. So then when Christian, Christianity sort of de-Judaized around the time of Constantine and afterwards, it kind of said, well, we're just going to take the concept of Sabbath and just move it to Sunday. And so that's how eventually Christians came to see Sunday as the Sabbath. But it's not. It never was. I, I grew up as a preacher's kid, and so there were certain expectations of what you could and couldn't do in a small town in South Georgia on the Sunday. Yeah. You don't cut your grass on Sunday. What? Everybody's cutting their grass on Saturday. That's the Sabbath. That's when they should be resting. So it's just, there's a lot. Just beware of folk theology and dogmatism around things that are kind of unclear. But anyway, so that was the ongoing holiday for Israel. Now, within Israel, though, there were cycles of Sabbaths. There were cycles of seven. Seven is everywhere throughout. And we'll see in just a minute how it comes into play. Verse four, it goes on and says, these are the Lord's appointed feasts sacred assemblies that you are to proclaim at their appointed times. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. So the first month, halfway through the first month, the first holiday, the foundational feast, the thing that Israel is gathered around as a people and identifies with is Passover. So on the 15th day, it begins at twilight, begins at sundown. On the 15th day, of that month, the Lord's Feast of Unleavened Bread begins. For seven days you must eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. For seven days, present an offering made to the Lord by fire. And on the seventh day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. So the first of the three spring feasts was Passover. Why is it first? Because there's no Israel without Passover. There's no Exodus without Passover. Israel as a nation was birthed at Passover. Before then, they were a family that had multiplied into a, a, a population of slaves. They became a people 
at the events surrounding Passover. That was sort of their declaration of independence, so to speak. That was the beginning of them as a people. So it only makes sense that that would be the first festival, the first feast that they would celebrate. And they would use it, they would celebrate with unleavened bread because going back to the Exodus, that's what they had to eat. That's what they had to they had to make their bread without yeast because they were going to leave that night and yeast takes time to rise before you can cook it. So all of this festival looks back to their liberation, their redemption. That was when they were redeemed. That's when, as we saw in Exodus, that's when Israel got saved. Literally, the word saved is used to describe the Exodus. So Israel's salvation comes at the Exodus for them as a people. And this is the first thing that they celebrate. Then, verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land that I'm going to give you, and you reap its harvest, this will all be kind of new for them, bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. He's to wave the sheaf before the Lord so it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. On the day you wave the sheaf, you must sacrifice a burnt offering to the Lord, a lamb a year old without defect, together with its grain offering of two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by the Lord, made to the Lord by fire, a pleasing, pleasing aroma, and its drink offering of a quarter hen of wine. You must not eat any bread or roasted or new grain until the very day you bring this offering to your God. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. Now, this festival takes place, this next one is called First Fruits. And First Fruits is exactly what it says. This is the beginning of the first harvest. This will be the barley harvest in the spring. This will be around March or April, uh, shortly thereafter. And the first, you, the harvest that would happen would be the barley harvest. Wheat would grow a little bit later and be harvested, and then grapes and fruits would be harvested in the fall later as well. But this is like the first harvest of the year. This is the one that they lived and died on. You don't get this, you don't have a good chance of surviving if you're a agrarian society. So before they start to process and start to use and start to live off of all of what they've harvested, they take a representative, first fruits, the first bit, and they take that to the Lord and prepare a meal with it. That's what the offerings are. Remember, Levitical offerings were meals. They prepare this meal and it had wine and it had uh, bread and it had a uh, a burnt offering and all this stuff they prepared and they would take this first fruit and they would wave it which means not like hey but give it to God and God gives it back that's what the wave offering was present it to you and you're giving it back and only then would the rest of the harvest that they were yet to bring in and process and use only then would that be considered ready to use that would be considered blessed that would be considered okay You've dedicated the first part to God. Now you, he's giving you the rest as your provision. And so this would be a festival. This would be a celebration. This would be a harvest festival for the first harvest of the year, first fruits. So if the first part was given, the first sheaf, then the rest could be brought in and used. And that's the image that the New Testament uses when it talks about Jesus. His resurrection. Paul talks about this to the Corinthians. He says, Jesus is the first fruits. In other words, he's risen. 
So if the first fruits are presented as holy, then the rest of the grain, the rest of the offering is holy. So if Jesus, the logic that Paul's using vaguely is this, if Jesus has been raised, resurrected to new life, he's the first fruits. That means that everybody else is part of that harvest will also be raised to new life like him. So he's kind of the depositor, the down payment, so to speak. And, and, it's, and it's drawing on this imagery. There's so much in the New Testament that draws on these festivals because it was just part of Israel's life. It was just how they worship God. So there's no surprise that the New Testament then would say, yeah, it's the same God. It's the same people, Israel, the same concept of Messiah. It just looks different now because a new covenant era has dawned. But it's still the, the, the core of these holidays still remains in the New Testament. So then it goes on after first fruits. Then it says, from the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. So from the day after first fruits. Count off seven full weeks. Count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath. So seven Sabbaths after this first fruits. 50 days later. Then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. From wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two tenths of an ephah of fine flour baked with yeast as a wave offering of first fruits to the Lord. Present with this bread seven male lambs, each year old and without defect. One young bull and two rams, they will be burnt offering to the Lord, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, an offering made by fire, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Then sacrifice one male goat for a sin offering, and two lambs, each year old, for a fellowship offering. The priest is to wave the two lambs before the Lord as a wave offering, together with the bread of first fruits. They are a sacred offering to the Lord for the priest. On that same day, you are to proclaim a sacred assembly, do no regular work. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. So now this was the second part of this harvest year, uh, 50 days after the first fruits. This would be when, um, this would be like at the end of, this would be when the wheat would be harvested. So barley was harvested first, and this is most likely then the, the bringing in of the rest of the grains, which is the wheat. Now there still has to be fruits that grow and things on trees and uh, the wine and all that stuff. That comes in the fall. But this is kind of the end of the spring, 50 days after. The Greek word for 50 days, Pentecost. This is Pentecost. That's where the name comes from. So 50 days after, and Pentecost was originally not just the end of the bringing in the wheat harvest, but in later Jewish tradition, as by the time of Jesus, Pentecost became identified with the time 50 days after Israel left Egypt and came to Mount Sinai. And so Pentecost became associated with the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, the giving of the covenant. So the bringing in of the wheat was kind of in the agricultural sense. It was the fulfillment of this, this harvest season that God had kicked off and kept his promise when they're in the land. But also theologically, it was symbolizing or it was calling to mind the giving of the law in Mount Sinai. It making Israel become truly the people of God in covenant relationship with him. What began at Passover was sort of fulfilled or culminated at the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. 
So, no surprise then in the New Testament when the new Moses, who is also the new Israel, who is also the new Adam, who is Jesus, the Messiah, when he calls his people first and presents himself as a sacrifice to them, he does it at Passover. That's bringing them out of slavery, not to Egypt, but to sin itself and creating a new people around him. Then when he is going to seal that and move them from the salvation that happened on the cross and the resurrection to the covenant relationship that actually constitutes now the real true people of God from all nations, Jew and Gentile alike, the eschatological Israel itself, he does it on Pentecost. That's when the Holy Spirit sent. That's when, quote, the church is born. But that's not true. The church was there all along. Church is just the word for gathering in Israel in the Old Testament. It's called the church. Camped around Mount Sinai. That was the church of Israel. So it's not a brand new, completely out of left field thing. God's using these holidays and these moments in Israel's redemption as the moments when he steps into human history and takes on the form of Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, that he then fulfills all of Israel's destiny in himself on these certain days and times. So this is the kind of stuff that the first Jewish Christians, the first believers in Jesus, would have just, their heads would have been spinning. The, the people on the road to Emmaus, or Jesus with his disciples for 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, when he's leading them through the scriptures and he's showing, hey, all scripture points to me. These are the kind of connections that he would have been making, which is why then James, Peter, Paul, John, the guys that would write the rest of the New Testament would make those same connections. The author of Hebrews, they would, they would see the dots connected. And they would see Jesus is fulfilling our national destiny in himself. So knowing the, the holidays of Israel sheds new light, sheds deeper light on the story of Jesus as Israel's Messiah. The cool thing about this one is um, Pentecost or Feast of Weeks or sometimes a feast of, they have a couple of different names in different places. But the good part about it is it's a celebration. This is kind of the end of the spring, the end of this harvest. We're going to celebrate. We're going to bring all this stuff. We're going to have these sacrifices, these burnt offerings, sin offerings, be sanctified, have communal meal together. It would be celebrated among families or tribes or clans. And then the command that verse 22 is when you reap, don't reap to the very edges of the field. Built within this entire system was the fact that if God brings you into the land, he provides the rains for your harvest. He provides what you need to grow these crops. He gives you the ability to work. Even though you're only working six days instead of seven like the rest of the nations, you're doing in six days what they can do in seven. That's the whole philosophy behind why Chick-fil-A is dominating the fast food industry. That's, that's kind of how they do it. We're going to do in six days what McDonald's does in seven, and we're going to do it better. I digress. That's the point, though, is that kind of faith in God and what he's doing. Then he's saying, now, because of all this, your land is going to have abundance. You're going to be blessed. However... There will be poor people among you. So that seems to contradict. If God's going to provide, why are there poor people among them? Why are there widows? Why are there orphans? Why are there people they need? We don't know. We just know that that's going to be a fact. But the other fact is they're going to be provided for the rest of the people. So built into the system is that the people who God has blessed, they are the ones who will provide the means for the people who are poor to be blessed as well. It doesn't say 
Now listen, this is really important. This is where we start to step on political toes on both sides of the aisle. It doesn't say the poor among you, too bad. They're lazy and they deserve to be poor. It doesn't say that. And it doesn't say you're going to be blessed because you have mustard seed faith and you've sowed your seed into this ministry and you're going to have your mansion and you're going to have your jets and you're going to have all that. It doesn't say that either. But it also doesn't say reap all of your harvest, gather all of your harvest, and then give some to the poor. It doesn't say that either. It strikes a very fine balance. It says reap almost all of your rewards, almost all of the fruit of your labor, but leave some for the poor to come and reap themselves. See that balance? There's charity, but it's empowerment charity. It's give them the ability to do the work that you are doing as well. It's a hand up, not a hand out. And this is where, again, both sides of the political aisle, especially in election year, you know, one side, we're going to give you all the handouts, entitlements, da, da, da. The other side's, oh, we're dying from a welfare state and people, they're too lazy to work, they don't deserve it, blah, blah, blah. Both sides have like a piece of the truth, but they're missing the full truth. And that's what as believers, as the kingdom of God, that's the, the one of the, I think, one of the main lessons in how God has set up his holy feasts, his holy days, is in God's economy, Everyone should have the ability to provide for themselves. However, there are going to be some people whose burdens are too great for them to be able to carry their own load. So we're going to have to come along and bear the burdens of one another so that, not so that they can sit back and reap the rewards, but so that they can carry their own load. Make sense? There's, there's, a, there's a balance in this. And, and politically, and even in our own giving, we hear conflicting things or we feel conflicting things. You know, we, two Christians may look at a problem in society and have completely different views on how it should be fixed. And one of them is coming from the angle of God's economy saying, these people need help. Let's give them stuff. We've got stuff. We're rich. We're taken care of. So we should, the government should make us have to give a portion of them through taxes, through programs, through, you know, whatever. That's one side. And it's not that they're entirely wrong. It's just that they're missing what the other side will come along and point out, which is I had to work for what I have. And God has given me the ability to work for what I have. And if somebody's not going to work, they should not eat, which is another truth of Scripture. So it walks the line. Scripture shines light on both ways that people, usually liberals and conservatives, come to these problems. But again, two Christians can look at the problem, and, and one is coming from this side, and they'll say, so this is what we should do, and I'm going to vote for this person that's going to do this. And the other is coming from this side saying, no, this is what we should do, I'm going to vote for the person that's going to do this. Both of them have something right about what they're wanting. It's just which way to provide for whatever the need is, which way most closely aligns with how God desires that need to be met. And that calls for wisdom, and that calls for discussion, and that calls for openness, and for, for being willing to see that, yes, God does call us to provide for the people who don't have the same needs. We are blessed in order to bless. 
all the way back to Genesis. God blessed Abraham. Why? That last clause of the, of the passage. So that through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So we are blessed. That's why it drives me crazy when I see Christians accumulating so much wealth. Just accumulating wealth. And I, there's no standard because by, by the standard of my friends in India, I am wildly wealthy. Even though I live under the federal poverty line, according to the IRS, in America. So there's a whole different system in play and there's some subjectivity. But it's, it's one of those where it's a battle for me when I look at celebrity Christians. And I see a house bigger than any one person could ever possibly need. And more cars than anybody could ever hope to drive. And more... And, when I see that, and it's, it's hard because I don't know what they're doing with the other part of their money. I don't know that they're not giving 90% away and keeping 10%, and the 10% they're keeping is just so much beyond anything I could ever imagine. I don't know. That's where I have to sort of let God, Lord, I'm going to hold judgment. You deal with stewardship your way. But I know that the principle, what I'm feeling when I see that, there's a principle within me saying, woe to you, rich Christian." If you are not giving away more than you are taking in, and you still have all this abundance. Because scripture does paint a very bleak outcome for people that do that, that hoard, that gather, that build bigger barns to hold more of their stuff. So it's not a one-size-fits-all. And there are some people that are fabulously wealthy and that are more generous than I'll ever be. And there's some people who are pretty poor but they're also incredibly stingy. So it's not a marker. You can't look at the bottom line in the checkbook and determine somebody's heart. But you can know a tree by its fruit. And so that's where, where we are, no matter what we are, no matter what you're bringing in every year, no matter how big your harvest is, your harvest may be $20,000 a year and you have a family of five. Your harvest may be $100,000 a year and you get a family of two. Those are two very different situations. God himself is calling both people and everybody in between to say, look, I'm giving you what I've given you to provide for what you have. And you may, if you're on this end, you may need to glean from the fields of others. You may need to rely on the opportunity that others want to provide you. Just be ready to work. And on this end, saying, hey, you're reaping too much of your rewards. You need to leave some, You need to use your wealth to give other people the ability to generate and bring in their own harvest. So it's a balance. Not a, there's not a one-size-fits-all answer. But those are the spring holidays in Israel, and God set them up for so many reasons, theological and practical. And this is just one example. Next week, we'll look at the second half of the chapter. We'll look at the fall festivals and these are like that and also there's a cool new testament connection uh to particularly the feast of uh tabernacles or, or sukkoth or feast of booths or whatever it's called in your bibles but we'll see how jesus connected it and what it says what it was meant to show theologically about the canaanites and all of the people there um, you'll really enjoy that all right so we have plenty of food left if you want seconds otherwise have a great week